conversations with people from all walks of life, talking about their extraordinary experiences and inspirational messages. Now, here's your host, Lana Reed. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to another Wednesday of Don't Box Me In. Today we're going to be talking about uh, those rough patches in life that some of us experience. You know, maybe like the loss of a job, terminal illness, maybe it's problems in school or a death in the family, possibly the overwhelming responsibility of providing for and taking care of others. Whatever might be the reason, it sometimes causes a person to wake up every day wondering, what's the point of waking up every day? It is estimated that 8.2 million adults have had thoughts of suicide in the past year alone, with 2.2 million adults actually following through and making suicide plans. It is a myth and a stigma that people who try to commit suicide must be crazy. In reality, most often the triggers for suicide involve grief and depression. Our society views people who consider suicide to be weak and shameful, which almost always prevents any of them from seeking help. My guest today has come full circle emotionally, from quietly carrying the burden of suicidal thoughts to openly discussing her journey and recovery. Carla Jackson is a military wife and mother of 12. And when she first reached out to me to be a guest on the show, I myself had to step back and reflect on the daunting task that must be her everyday life. I mean, you have to wonder who amongst us could take on her responsibilities and not be overwhelmed emotionally from time to time. Reading her story, I was impressed that she was now in a place to be able to open up and talk to about her struggles in an effort to help others. It is with great pleasure that I welcome Carla to my show today. Well, that's so sweet. <laughs> I love Thank you. you. Thank you for joining me. I'm happy to be here, figuratively speaking. <laughs> yeah. So um, tell me, you're a wife and a mother. Let's let's uh, knock out the first part of that story first. How long have you been married? Um, let's see. I think going on 20 years, something like that. You know, because so. you're married for a certain amount of time, and then you've been you were together before that. Gotcha. So gotcha. And your husband like is in the military. Years. Yeah, he's what we call a lifer. Okay, so he's been in there the whole time you guys were married, or did that happen? Yeah, after he actually, he he uh, enlisted uh, right after we graduated from graduate school. So okay, um, so yeah, you guys were like college sweethearts. Uh, yeah, I guess you could say that. The, my my sorority was dating people in his fraternity, and that's how we, you know, it's the cute little sorority fraternity girl guy thing. All righty. So we have um, a college education. You have a degree in, in what is your degree in? I have a bachelor's in psychology, and I have a master's of human services. Congratulations. Congratulations. And we're going to knock out the uh, second part of this. You have 12 kids, dear? I do. I have um, five biological kids, and I have seven adopted kids. Okay. What? Um, wh- why did you start adopting, if I may ask? What was the uh, circumstances of that? When I was in Germany, when John was assigned to Germany, I did something called child care there. And mm-hmm. I was a provider for a little girl who had single parents. And you have to have a family care plan when you're military. So that if you're deployed, if there's 
a field exercise or a, a war, you know, happens that your child fights for. And this little girl's name was Taylor, and she came to me when she was two and a half months old. When she was three and a half, parents went out for six months of field duty and didn't come back until she was almost one. And mm. when they came back, that little girl just hung on to me and screamed and cried, and I felt like my own baby was getting ripped right out of my arms. So I mm-hmm. think at that point that it wasn't a matter of biology. It was a matter of just providing daily care and doing all the things that mommies do. Okay. So the parents didn't give any struggle with, or it was a, an okay deal for them to give up their baby for adoption? No, this wasn't the, this was an adoption baby. This is the okay. Taylor's the reason I wanted to adopt. Okay. Okay. I see. I see. Okay. So when, when was your first adoption? What was the name of that child and how old is he or she now? We first adopted a sibling set of three, and we adopted them, uh, Christopher, Robert, and Matthew, when they were respectively six, four, and 18 months. And now they're almost 17, just turned 14, and will be turning 12 at the end of July. So we we didn't do it one at a time. We did it at that trio first. (laughs) Just knock it all out. Just get it out the way, I guess, huh? Well, yeah. Seemed like the thing to do at the time. Okay, and it, it worked. Now let me back up a little bit. Your your oldest child now is I think we had discussed before is twenty three. That's your oldest biological child, right? Right, right. Okay, and then um, I guess maybe I need to figure out how everything flows here. So, are the is there a mixing and mingle in between biological and adopted, or how does that how do no, yeah. they break? We're, we're all, we're all little stairs. I mean, they're not little stairs now that they're growing up. They're bigger stairs. But <laughs> uh, Zach is 23, and then my daughter is 21. My third son, these are bio kids, is, are 19. And then here comes an, I call them additional rather than adopted. Um, Christopher is an additional. He'll be 17 this summer. Robbie is an additional. He just turned 14. Fred is an additional, um, but Caleb, I had a birth child in between there. Caleb will be 13 on uh, May 24th. Happy birthday, Caleb. <laughs> Happy birthday. Then there's Precious right behind him. Uh, we adopted her when she was six, and uh, then there is Matthew and then Joshua, and Joshua's 10. Uh, Matthew is 12, I think I said that, and then Eleanor is my last cooking baby, as we call it. She just turned nine, and my great nephew, he just turned six on the same day that my bio daughter turned nine. They have the same birthday, three years apart. And then the tiny little baby of the family who isn't so little is, and he turned four on April 1st. So they range in age from uh, four to 23. Okay. And from what I'm hearing, um, because I heard, like, great-nephew. So you've adopted children along the way with various needs and circumstances. Uh, what are some of those uh, reasons that the babies came to you? Under what circumstances? The the first that came to us because their parents, or the sips out of three came to us because their parents were indulging in a lifestyle. They were doing drugs. There was domestic violence. They were neglected. They were physically abused. 
and my oldest adopted son had actually witnessed his um, 22-month-old brother be beaten to death by his uncle. Mm. So CPS moved to intercede, and we were matched with them. And then we got Joshua, their youngest half-biological brother, who we got when he was 13 months. He's now 10, because when you adopt children from the system and children come into the system that are siblings of ones you have, they try to their families together as much as they can. Okay. Um, so that they are exposed to, I mean, Christopher has a stress disorder. Uh, his next sibling down has borderline reactive attachment disorder. They're, they're drug exposed. Joshua is, if you open the textbook and look at a cocaine child when they're 10 years old, there'd probably be a picture of him in there. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just textbook. Mm-hmm. Um, Joshua also had a submucous cleft palate that we have to watch. Um, he had to have some surgeries on his ears. And then we, Nathaniel is actually my great nephew. He was born at a time that it just seemed the right thing to do. My niece was not able to care for him. She asked if we would take him, and of course we said yes. Precious mm-hmm. was actually being raised in a, a crack house. Her mm. was a drug drug dealer, and they were manufacturing crystal meth in her house. Um, so that's why she was removed from that situation. And James, just a salvation. He's such a survivor. He was born, um, his mom was a cocaine user. She did not seek any prenatal care throughout mm. her pregnancy. So when she went into labor, is the first time she went to the doctor. Um, he had to have a crash, she had to have a crash C-section, so James was born without life. They resuscitated him, put him on a ventilator, shut the little heart. Um, he came back, but he went into cocaine withdrawal, which is a seizure, so they had to medicate him for that. He had a G-tube when I got him. He has mild, terrible palsy. Uh, he came home at five weeks, and as I said, he's four and he's, he's quite a handful. Wow, amazing. And um, also I remember there's some circumstances, some special circumstances that made you a grandmother as well, correct? Oh, yes. That's part of the reason that I I think I lost my mind or I didn't Mm -hmm. know I lost my mind. I did. When my son that's going to be 17 uh, was 13, I had my very best friend in the world had an older dog and I trusted them like I would trust my daughter, you know, my sister. Mm-hmm. And I had her oldest daughter look after my youngest kids when I ran errands so I didn't have to drag everybody out with me. And it appears, or not it appears, what happened was is that she, as a senior in high school with a full-ride scholarship to a UNC school to be a teacher, this person found my 13-year-old son, who just turned 13 in August, sexually appealing, and they relationship unbeknownst to me. And so my granddaughter was born in August, three years ago. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Amazing. That is a lot. the The betrayal was horrible because she didn't tell me. You know, her mom called me and said, oh, my gosh, so and so's pregnant. And I went to the hospital with her because she had preeclampsia. I sat by that girl's bedside. I brought her books. I took her baby clothes shopping, never knowing that that was my grandchild she had. 
So the mother, no, nobody informed you till well after the baby was here? No. What happened was is that mom asked her mom to please bring her her laptop computer at the hospital, and she did. And when her mom picked up that laptop, a letter to my son fell out of it saying, if you don't want people to know if you are the fa- that you are the father of my children, better tell your brother to shut his mouth. Mm. So I got her phone call, went to the office, went to the hospital and, um, you know, talked to her. She's still there for pre- preeclampsia. And uh, she said, yes, he is the father. And what do you do at that time? How do you how do you handle that? Your husband isn't home. Your husband's deployed, or he's in school. You're twelve children who are four years younger than what I just described by yourself. Mm-hmm. And it was one month after a really horrible situation for me. Anyway, mm-hmm. what do you do? Yeah, what do you do? Wow. So, hmm. I think I want to, because I want to get into, because you mentioned that uh, this incident is probably what started you having the the spiral and the thoughts of suicide. I want to get into that, but it looks like it's close to break. So we're going to take a break now, and when I come back, we're going to start talking about that. Stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Lana Reed. Welcome back. Welcome back. Today's guest is Carla Jackson. And before the break, we were um, talking about the unfortunate and painful betrayal of her best friend and uh, her son becoming a father at 13. And you mentioned that that was probably the starting point when you began to uh, think about suicide and everything uh, and your husband wasn't around did you have anybody else maybe to talk to or befriend or um, no were you because just when, when you have 12 kids you tend to be isolated you don't have a peer group people don't invite you to birthday parties because if they invite your children then they can't invite anybody else's. Chuck E. Cheese doesn't design birthday parties for 40-some kids when 12 of them hail for one family. You don't get invited to movies out with people. You don't get invited to anything, really. So you mm-hmm. give up a whole adult life when you choose to parent that many children with the special needs that ours have. Okay. There was nobody. Being military, all my family was back in Indiana, and my mother had just passed away the month before that. Before you found out you were a grandmother? One month and one week after my mother died, my granddaughter was born, which would be her her great-granddaughter. Wow. Um, wow. I'm, I'm still trying to digest a lot of this. Um, oh, listen listen to this, Miss Lana. The, the thing is, <laughs> is, we sat around and picked out the baby's name, and oh. they were trying to they tried to think of a name for her. This was before I knew it was my grandbaby. This baby carries my middle name for her middle name, and I didn't even know it was my granddaughter. Mm, 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 mm. And so all of this happened um, how many years ago? Um, going on four. This August it will be four. 
Okay. Would you say before this happened four years ago, you would consider yourself to have been emotionally fine or okay, or were things like overwhelming before this happened? No, I, I mean, I was, people would like to say that I was probably a nut because I had so many kids, but I was very mm-hmm. confident that I had my purpose in life and I knew what it was and I was actively doing it. I was supportive of my husband's military career and very prideful of it. I got my master's degree while I had nine children at home while he was deployed twice during that period of time. So I can call myself um, not able to do anything. Mm-hmm. I, would, I, I didn't just sit there and wait for things to come to me. I actually involved myself and tried to better the world that I live in. I think it's very important for us to all do our little part. True, true that. So you were, you know, going along, tackling the world, you know, even with the challenges of this, you know, uh, baseball team, basketball team for a family, so to speak. What what do you think it was about this particular incident in life that really started to break you down? Well, when my mom had died the month prior, my um, it was an unexpected death. She had been ill, but not deathly ill, if you pardon the phrase. She had fallen and broken her femur and following surgery had had a stroke and then a heart attack, or I can't even remember which came first. doesn't really matter now, but I, I flew back to Indiana to be with her. My mother uh, had a very strong desire to not live hooked up to machines, so she had asked me many years ago to make sure that she was not, and I told her no. Mm-hmm. I told her I would hook her ass to a toaster if I thought there was <laughs> any way that she would ever come back to me. And I told her, I'm not doing it. You make one of my other sisters do it. I'm the baby of the family. That's not something that you should ask me to do. Mm-hmm. But when I flew back, my oldest sister wasn't there. My youngest sister was. And the doctor came and said, it's time to decide whether we put her on a ventilator or not because she's definitely going to die. With it, she may die, probably will die, but, you know, miracles. And my sister, who is the power of attorney or was a power of attorney of my mother and my is of my father now, looked the doctor at the doctor and looked at me and looked down and said, do what Carla tells you to do and walk to the hospital, leaving you standing there. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think, the beginning. And then for that, so I did as my mother wished, which went against everything that personally I believe. Mm-hmm. And I held her hand as she died that day, mm-hmm. and I took off my own clothes. I washed her body. I didn't want anybody to touch my mother. That's my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, spoke her eulogy, carried her casket. You know, I was the strong one. The whole time, my husband was not there. He was at school, and it wasn't a school he could just leave. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm alone. I didn't bring any of my kids with me because we didn't know if she would survive the surgery or how she would cover her. So I'm there doing all of that alone. Then my mom had no life insurance, so the financial burden fell to me also. I mean, and then a month and a week after that, I find out that my 13-year-old is father? Mm. Really? Seriously, yeah. doesn't have that stuff on. Yeah, it's understand. So when you started to think about suicide, what were the initial thoughts? Um, what my, were you feeling? My initial my initial thoughts were not necessarily of suicide. It was me saying, what is the way I can make all this stop? 
how can I make this stop? How can I make it go away? How can I stop hurting? How can I stop feeling just so out of control and full of anger, rage, guilt, um, depressed? You know, it, it was just a desire to find something that I could do to stop. Because with all that fancy education I have and life experience and parenting, it didn't really help at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially the back-to-back uh, circumstances. I mean, I don't think even the strongest, you know, uh, there's a point where you can only take so much. So, um, you know, I think that, that that's completely understandable to have those moments like, wait a minute, hold on, not me. But when you when you first attempted or started to carry through your thoughts of suicide or making this pain in, what exactly did you do? I went to the, there's a lock and dam a couple miles down from my house, and I used to go there to think. My mother had mailed me a box the year before she died, and on the first anniversary of her death, I had gone to the dam, and I had opened the box from my mother, and so that to me was a very private, personal spot for me to go to, and I went, and I took, let me see, I took a whole lot of, a lot. I had Klonopin for anxiety. I had high blood pressure pills, because I have high blood pressure, Um, and I took everything that I had, and I sat back in my um, Yukon, and I have to say, this is the part that freaks a lot of people out. That is probably the most peaceful moment I have ever had in my entire life after I swallowed the last pill and put the drink down because it was finally going to stop. The pain was just going to be over. There was going to be no more. There was going to be no people saying this, no more people doing that. Obviously, anybody in their office could have protected my son better than I did because he wouldn't have been whatever it is they call it for a, a boy to be a father at that. It wouldn't have disappointed my husband and the job that I'm doing when he's got this stand-up career. Um, it, it just, I looked up at the sky, the wind was blowing, the birds were chirping in the background, I could hear families playing in the water down by the, the boat deck, and I looked up at my mom, I looked up at the sky, and I said, I'll see you soon, Mommy, and I told the baby that I miscarried Uh, several years ago that I would be with her soon because in my heart I always thought it was a girl. And I closed my eyes and I went Mm -hmm. to sleep. So so clearly you're talking to me today, so that means you weren't successful with that. Uh, How did did that happen? Because somebody intervened as as human beings are wont to do. they, my family knew I was not in the right mind. I had a friend of the family who came to find me, and turns out this was not really a friend of the family. This was somebody who was taking advantage. But anyway, they came to find me, and um, they uh, brought me to They called the ambulance. The ambulance came and did CPR. Um, you know, I wasn't kidding around. I, mm-hmm. I was done. And when I woke mm. up in the hospital, I was extremely pissed, I was mm. very mad, because I'm a backup plan kind of person, but I didn't have a backup plan for this because I wasn't supposed to wake up. Mm-hmm. 
So I was, how dare you stop me from doing what I wanted to do? Who gave you the right to be my God? Who gave mm-hmm. you the right to interfere with what my choice as a person in the United States is? Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm sure you know that that just made people want to come and give me a hug and droves. No, when you try to commit suicide, they think that you have leprosy. Stay away mm-hmm. from you. Mm-hmm. So I got my stomach pumped. They, uh, I was not a very good patient. Um, they had to tie me down to do that, and they hmm. tied me at one point because uh, I resisted. I didn't want to be saved. I mean, really, I did not want to be saved. I spent some time in a facility, and, um, you know, those are always fun places to be. That's where mm-hmm. I found out that there's always somebody worse off than you. Either True. As low as you think you are, there's always somebody else that is having an equally or more difficult time than you are. True. Now, you're in the hospital, stomach's pumped, you're angry that you didn't get to, um, six, you know, have a successful attempt. Uh, you're still alone as far as your spouse? You're still going through this all by yourself? Yeah, he's in Iraq. And I had told him, I had told him about a week. Our marriage had been in, in trouble for a while. We had, I had told him I wanted a separation. I considered myself legally separated from him. We continued to talk, and we weren't legally separated. This was just me saying I began a relationship with somebody who I should not have. You know, retrospect is horrible. Um, and he was in Iraq, and that's my thing with him is he was always gone, always gone. Whenever I needed him, he was gone. An anniversary, where are you? You're in the Army. Birthdays, births of children, deaths of parents, births of grandchildren. Where are you, my husband? Oh, that's right. You're with your first wife. You're in the Army. Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, it was, he was in Iraq, and so they called him home from Iraq, and oh my gosh, was he not a happy camper. In spite of what you were going through, there was still no compassion or no understanding? Well, of course he had compassion for another human being, but how would you feel if you were him? Your wife has basically told you, I'm going to, I'm, well, first, I told him a week before I tried to kill myself that I was going to. And because I am the type of person that I am, he didn't believe me. You know, he just told me, well, go ahead if you're going to. That's so far out of the realm of normal for me. I mean, it's just not even on the same planet. Um, Okay. So he wished that I had actually done it, and then, you know, everything just balled up. And uh, he had compassion, but he had to safeguard our children because my own actions, by virtue of me being their primary caregiver, had put them in danger. I see. So So when he came home, was there a process where he tried to remove you from the home or take the kids from you or anything? No, he he just booted my butt to the curb. (laughs) He booted my butt to the curb. Um, (laughs) As soon as I got out of the hospital, he said, you're not coming here. Uh, So that uh, that was a real dark time. It was a real dark time. And this was how long ago? Four years ago still? No, this was this was about uh, two years ago. You know, two years ago. Has, yeah, everything has a timeline. So my mom passed away, then my granddaughter was born, then I meet a person who I think is something he isn't, and then 
I lose my mind, try to kill myself. My husband comes home, kicks me out. Um, was very traumatic for the children. I was not in my right mind. I had some lingering after effects from the suicide attempts. I not or attempt. I couldn't speak very well. I stuttered all the time. Um, I'm a husky chick. I'm usually like a size 16, 18. I had dropped to a size 12 because every time I tried to swallow, my throat would just seize up and I would choke. So it was it was pretty dramatic. So two years ago. What, a husband comes home upset, you're recovering from the hospital, and he kicks you out. Where do you go? Well, I went to the man's house, of course. Oh, okay. Okay. And, okay. Um, but the thing is, is that my husband felt that I was having some long-lasting, forward love affair. And, you know, when I went to that individual's house, he had moved on to girlfriend after me. Um, and the thing is, is that he was married himself, but I guess on his marriage, that worked for him. But hmm. there was no, there wasn't any Carla running to her boyfriend's house. This was Carla going to this home where she was left alone, alone with her hmm. own, physically alone, emotionally isolated, alone in every way a person can be. I mean, nobody, nobody called to see if I was okay. I didn't have a phone. My husband took my cell phone away. Hmm. Uh, I was completely and totally alone. Mm-mm-mm. There was no rescuing. It, it was alone. Well, hold that thought. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk more about this, this time period in your life. We'll be right back with more. Let's return to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com with your host, Lana Reed. Hello hello again and welcome back. We're talking with Carla Jackson and uh, let me first say that we're glad that she's here to talk to us after what she just explained to us. Uh, just a quick recap. Um, so... You had your, your episode, you're trying to end it all, your husband comes home, he's upset, uh, takes the kids from you, kicks you out the house, you're now staying at the other man's house. Uh, how long did you end up staying there? I was there for two months, and then I went to stay with friends in Washington State that, um, wow, it is cold in Washington State. <laughs> I mean, you're used to being in North, where I am. Mm-hmm. warm climate, it is cold up there. <laughs> but I went and stayed with a friend that I had met through the adoption community because I had done volunteer work with adoption advocacy groups. And I stayed with her family for about five five months. And then I mm-hmm. came back to our state because my our son, our third son, was graduating from high school. Okay, so while you're in, because I'm, I'm assuming that the time period with the the man was a little toxic. So while you're um, staying with the friends in Washington, was that any healing moment for you, or did they help you at all get through stuff emotionally? They did. That's when it wasn't so much what they said; it's what they did not say. They allowed me to just be. And if I wanted to talk, it was okay. And if I did not want to talk, it was okay. And I knew I was in a safe environment. I knew I was going to have food. I knew that 
um, I could at least talk to the kids on the phone because my spouse was allowing that. And it, it's just I needed that numbness of and, the, and to reconcile the fact that, okay, I'm still alive. Mm-hmm. And look at what I've done with myself. Now nobody wants me. I don't even myself. Now how do, how do you stand up from that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what that period of time was spent doing. Okay. And then you, you came back to, because uh, your son was graduating, did you and your husband reconcile at that point or no? Not immediately. I stayed with a girlfriend in a, in a neighboring city, um, attended graduation, and my spouse, um, I don't, the way our marriage had worked is that I don't have any property. It's everything's kidding. So when I left the home or when he asked me to leave the home and I did, I had nothing but the clothes on my back and a backpack that I had thrown some stuff in. So hmm. he, um, he came to my friend's house and picked me up, my girlfriend's house and picked me up and brought me to the house to visit the kids and then, and brought me home back to her house when we were done visiting, um, and did that for a couple, two or three weeks. And, uh, one night when I was visiting, he had fallen asleep on the couch and when he woke up, he didn't want to drive back, um, but he did anyway, and then on the way home, he fell asleep and hit the guardrail on the highway with his truck and totaled his truck. So I think that may have been an epiphany that life is fleeting at best. Mm-hmm. And that the kids, everybody, every child loves their mother, even if they aren't a good, every child loves who they identify as their caregiver, even if they hate them at the same time. Mm-hmm. And there's a special blend of demands when you have as many children as we have that it's virtually impossible to explain to somebody if they're not actually doing it too. Mm-hmm. And so I I think that's part of the reason that he he did drop divorce proceedings and, and let me return home. Um, okay, so he had, he had started to the process of getting a divorce then. Yeah, he of course. I mean, he had to in order to protect our children. Okay, um, and I I understand that, and he had to protect himself. I inflicted a lot of hurt. I mean, yeah. he did. Everybody was hurting each other. Nobody was caring about one another. Everybody was being very narcissistic. Um, I just earlier in the show you said that people have a certain point, and mine. Mm-hmm. And I just broke. Gotcha. Now, I'm sure there's some people who are listening who might uh, ask why you would consider suicide, knowing you had such a large family, so many children uh, that really just depended on you for their day-to-day existence. Uh, what explanation can you offer to them, if any? I'm not sure that it'll be understandable, but felt like the only thing that I had left to give my children was my death because I don't, this is a valid thing or not, you know, when you're contemplating death as an option, it's not, you don't check mm-hmm. on the legalities of it. But I have a fair amount of life insurance. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, you know, my kids only have to go to community college for two years now because they'll be able to go to a four-year school. And I won't have to stop at a yard and get their clothes. Because they can go to the, or they won't have to, because they'll have money for my death, they can go to the mall and get it. You know, we won't have to live in 
in a house that's an okay size, but nobody has their own bed. You know, their daddy can afford to get them a nicer one. And I honestly felt that anybody on the planet could do a better job with those kids than I had done. My own son had been raped in my girlfriend's house, and I didn't even know how, what kind of person was I to deserve the right to take care of those children. The only thing I had left to give them was insurance money and, and absenting my lack of protection from their life. Does that make yeah, I understand. I understand. So the kids during all of this, emotionally they had to uh, be affected. Did you? Did they have any changes uh, within them, or was the household just chaos at this time, or was everybody just as business as usual? No, it was chaos. And, and um, I mean, I wasn't privy to it because I wasn't allowed in the house for eight months. But when I did come back, my older children were furious absolutely furious at me. My uh, middle children were special, but they weren't bonding. And my youngest children, you could tell, were longing to, to cuddle and do the things that mommies do with the little kids, but they didn't want to because they didn't want daddy to be mad. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was, um, it, was, it was heartbreaking on a whole other level. Um, mm-hmm. Because you wow. not only, when you do this, you don't affect yourself, you affect so many other people. And then we live in a small community, and everybody knows your business. Everybody mm-hmm. knows your business. So you're trying to stand up in a place where everybody is looking at you like you have the scarlet S for suicide on your forehead, where your husband can't stand you, your children are mad at you, and you understand and agree with every negative feeling that's coming your way because you feel it for yourself more than they do. It was hard. Mm. Do, is this a, a first incident for you, or uh, uh, let me rephrase that. Are there other instances of maybe suicide or depression in your family, or are you like the first that this sprung up on? Well, I mean, my family has had depression, but nobody's actually tried to take their own lives except for me. Um, I'm the only one to go to, to graduate school, only one to go to undergraduate school, and only one to have this many kids one to have a boy and also the only one who tried to kill themselves. Okay. So And it was only only that one suicide attempt? No, I had tried a few more times after that original when would not let me come home. Um, I did try again and and each time it was not an attention seeking effort. It was I really didn't want to be here and I didn't see any way back from it. But when you try as hard as I did and you can't get the job done Somebody's trying to tell you something. Yeah, yeah. You're supposed to be here to tell your story. I'm supposed to be here. And I don't really know why I'm supposed to be here. And for a long time, I was very angry at God because he didn't just let me go when I wanted to. But, um, you know, it is what it is. Well, we're going to take our last break of the day, and when we get back, we're going to talk about uh, Carla's recovery and uh, what she thinks people can do to uh, not go through what she went through. Stay tuned. We'll be back. You're
You're listening to Don't Box Me In on TalkZone.com. Here's Lana Reed. Hello, hello. We are with Carla Jackson today. Um, just had overcome some amazing things, and I'm so glad that she's here to uh, actually be talking with us today. Um, Carla, some people feel that if you talk about suicide to somebody, if you just mention the word, bring it up, that that will give a person ideas about suicide. In your case, do you feel if somebody had, a, you know, noticed you struggling emotionally and kind of said, you know, hey, Carla, what's going on? You know, let's sit down, let's talk. That would have helped you out a bit, or do you feel that nothing would have stopped you from doing what you did? I think in the early stages when I was feeling so lost and helpless and alone and nobody cares, my husband doesn't care, my kids wouldn't notice, you know, unless their dinner wasn't done, I was feeling all those hopeless feelings. It would have been very um, preventative for somebody to have told me, I see that you're struggling, I know that you're alone, your spouse is gone, you have all these kids, I know your mom just passed, can I please help you or... Will you please let me help you? Because I tended to self-isolate and just shut my mouth and not speak at all. If I had somebody who would just have been not sympathetic but empathetic, Mm -hmm. that would have been, I think, a lifeline for me to hang on to. But there just wasn't anybody there to do that. You know, talking to you, you, you have a wonderful spirit. You have a great sense of humor. You would not imagine you know, somebody with your personality would even consider such a thing. Um, what what would you say to people? Um, what would you tell people to look out for, for people around them um, who might be, you know, what, what to look out for for somebody committing suicide or having thoughts of suicide? Because you really don't fit what you would think somebody would be committing suicide. That just came out all wrong. But No, I understand what you mean, but but the thing is, is that the people around you take the time to notice what you're around when you're around somebody else. If you have a coworker who's really chirpy and then at work one day they're silent, does it really take too much time or productivity away from the powers that be for you to say, hey, are you okay? Mm-hmm. If you see a stranger in the store, nobody's saying with, with all the psychos we have, which I may be one in the world, um, mm-hmm. that we have running around out here, you don't say, hey, you want me to help you take groceries to your car or anything like that, but you can say, have say, you can, you can give light to people who are even in the shadow, because mm-hmm. if you don't notice the people who are in the shadow, eventually going to be in the dark, mm-hmm. and the dark is where nobody can reach you. That's, and I got to that point. I don't think that that day anybody could have stopped me from doing what I felt I had to do. Mm. But going up to that point, yeah, there were plenty of things that I longed for. I longed for somebody to notice. I longed for somebody to care. Um, I longed for somebody to just help, you know, help me, help me, help me. But it, it just wasn't to be for that time. Do you feel that because you were always the person who always had it together, you know, you taken on these wonderful, you know, um, giving back to the community type uh, responsibilities that people just overlooked you because, oh, that's just Carla. She's always got it together. Do you feel people thought of you that way and that maybe also contributed to the problem? Yeah, I do, to- because 
clearly they think that anybody who can have that many children is capable. And the other side of the fence is that people don't want to get involved the way that they used to. I mean, a generation ago, your neighbors, each other, if a neighbor was ill, they would assist. It's just not like that now. We, mm-hmm. It's just not like that It's kind of lame, but uh, people stay away more than they notice. They notice mm-hmm. enough to stay away, let's put it that way, because nobody wants to get involved with the dirty, nasty thing of suicide. I mean, you must be crazy to do that. Mm-hmm. Why would you want to hurt yourself? Suicide isn't about hurting yourself. It's about making the hurt stop. And that's the thing I try to help people understand. People who truly want to die are not harming themselves for attention. They don't want to feel anything. Pain, joy, they don't want to feel anything. So it's an effort to stop the pain. So as you've healed and recovered, have there been discussions with your husband and your kids so that everybody understands now, or is it just a topic that we don't talk about in the house? No, we go to couples therapy. I go to individuals therapy. I mean, I have all my good little tech and coping skills in place. It's been a very difficult challenge for my husband to um, get past it because there's a lot for him to get past. Um, the military doesn't exactly encourage you to give your enemy another chance to attack, and I mm-hmm. think that's how he perceives me a lot of the time. And if it wasn't for the years that we had invested in one another and the children that we have, I don't know that we would be trying to muddle our way through this now. Um, mm-hmm. But it is, it is very challenging every day, and sometimes it's sad. I scare myself because I know that dark place is there. And I don't want to go back to it, but I know that I have been in it in the past. So it's always like a, a little menacing piece of my mind back there. Mm-hmm. So you do have brighter days now, or do you still think you're a shoestring away from being at that spot again? I don't think I'm a shoestring away, and I do have generally in general, a a more positive life. I mean, the the life I live is a stressful one. I have a full-time job now. I have 11 kids at home. I have two kids in college, you know, high school, middle school, elementary school, and preschool. And a husband that goes and does TDY, temporary duty assignments. We have Mm -hmm. horses, a pig, dogs, and a cat. So, I mean, it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, yeah, it's a lot. What do you What do you do for Carla? What do you do for your time? I talk to Lana on the radio. <laughs> I write. Okay. I I write. I write poetry. I've written some children's books. Um, I just I write a lot, and that is my sanity. I think you, I've got to get the feelings out of me somehow. If you mm-hmm. let them remain, they fester. True. Are there, the city that you're in, um, are there any adoption support groups or you're still kind of flying solo as far as the, the friends and the network thing are going? I still fly solo as far as friends are concerned, mainly because my two reasons. One, when would I have the time? And two, because of 
the nature of the many betrayals that not only I felt, but my husband experienced too. There's a certain amount of fear to trust people. And, uh, so I don't, I don't really have friends per se. I have people that I know and that I've known for a long time. And I have uh, one wonderful friend named Liz that I talk to consistently. But other than that, um, Carla doesn't do for Carla. Carla's doing for Carla is grabbing my moment. You know, you you go into the bathroom and, and tell the kids you'll be out in a minute and you wash your face and take a deep breath and come out and face what's there. Mm-hmm. Do you have any dream or fantasy of, you know, like if I just had a day to myself, I would do this? Yeah, I mean, that's good because I didn't used to dream this long. I mean, for the longest time after I tried to kill myself, I could not read, I could not write, and I did not dream. Or if I did dream, they were night terrors and I would wake myself up screaming. Mm. So the fact that I can dream at all is a definite positive. Mm-hmm. I mean, but I think, really asking, the I think I'm asking... The last thing I had was about finding terry cloth towels at yourself for a decent price. <laughs> so that's pretty boring. That's the life of a mother there. I think if, uh, I think I'm asking though, like, if you had a day to yourself, would you, what would you do? Like, go to the spa or go hang out in the mountains? I mean, what would you do for Carla if you had the time? Nobody's ever asked me that before. That's a hard question. Okay. I have a Well, you need to think about that, and maybe these are things we, we need to incorporate into Carla's life. Maybe it won't be a whole day, but maybe if we could sneak away for an hour. Because uh, you you have such overwhelming responsibilities, you need Carla time. I think, and I have to be okay with spending time with myself. That's a, that's a big change. I think I've surrounded myself by children so much because as long as somebody is constantly demanding your time and attention, you don't have to do self introspection now, do you? So you think that's your comfort zone? I think that's my uh, security blanket. I think I I blanket myself with many responsibilities so that I don't have to explore the whys and what and what have and all that other stuff. Um, yeah, it's a coping technique. It's not the best one in the world. But so far, it's been working for you. It's sort of. I can't say that it has been. Though I can't say that it has because we've we've had some dark days. We have had some dark days, and I, I go to therapy routinely. I take my little um, don't-make-me-depressed happy pills, which mm-hmm. I don't really know why they call them happy pills. It takes you like a month for you to feel better. But I do I do the therapy. I do the medical intervention. Um, I go to the couples counseling. Um, but it, it's hard, Miss Lana, because the area in which I live, nobody ever forgets in small towns. Nobody mm-hmm. ever forgets in small towns. So people that once said hello to me before don't, teachers that I knew by first name now call me Miss Jackson. Um, hmm. The the grocer at the gro- local grocery store down the road used to tell me when chicken was going on sale, now he won't even say hello. Um, it's like people think that if they talk to somebody who tried to kill themselves, they're going to get a little bit of crazy rubbed off on them. Yeah, like it's a contagious <laughs> disease or something like that. And I think I yeah, I'd mentioned that in the um the opening that uh, you know, it's it's just really sort of a shameful kind of hush hush taboo kind of 
uh, act and, and nobody wants to address the problem. And that, that complicates the issue when nobody wants to talk about anything. That's exactly it. And it just makes the isolation of those who are feeling, it makes the, the public attitude towards suicide prevents individuals from seeking help for it because, oh, they're going to think that I'm crazy or they'll lock me up or they'll take away something that I love like a child or they'll kick me out of home. The negative consequences for talking about a negative like suicide are actually more intimidating than the thought of death to somebody who really wants to be dead. Mm. Wow. Does that make convoluted sense? True, it does. It does. It does. You know, Carla, unfortunately, I am out of time. I say this every week that my hour goes so fast. Um, today I've been chatting with Carla Jackson, a wife, mother of 12, and a suicide survivor. If you or someone you know is going through a tough time in life and is contemplating suicide, please visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org or call 1-800-273-TALK. That is 1-800-273-8255. There are plenty of resources out there. The first step is to reach out to somebody and talk about it. Carla, 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 thank you so much for speaking with me today. I wish you continued healing and strength. It is a true sign of your personal growth that you're able to talk openly about your struggles. Thank you. No, thank you. That's all for this week's show. I'll be back next week at the same time. Until then, remember when it comes to your dreams, the words can't and won't should never slow you down. There is always space to change and to grow. Don't be boxed in. Live your very best life. I am your host, Lana Reed, and you can visit my website, lanareed.com, my Facebook, Lana Reed Online, or even check out my Twitter, Lana Reed. Until next time, I look forward to connecting with you.